The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. I make no bones about it. That truly is my name. I'm joined again by Robert Schaefer. We were discussing O'Phil class and Stan Friedman last week and the, uh, I guess, the likeness of their personalities and their investigations. And as we discussed that, we moved off into talking about some of the UFO cases that have been investigated by both gentlemen and some of the errors that we found creeping into their their research. And when we went away, um, I had mentioned the Cone helicopter case. This was the Army helicopter pilots who saw a UFO in 1973, I think it was. I, I wrote about that in the book UFO, the UFO Dossier, and there's, there's points about it on my blog, including um, a discussion about the possibility it was a Refueling aircraft that had been seen by the helicopter crew, and that's what fooled them, and that sort of thing. And so I bring that up just to kind of uh, bring closure to that discussion last week. And, and to once again say that we, as UFO investigators, often bring different expertise to the table. And one of the things I can speak to with some expertise is what goes on in an Army helicopter pilot, uh, Army helicopter cockpit between the pilots as you're, you're uh, flying a mission and how the aircraft was handed off from one pilot to the other and that sort of thing. I mean, things that are relevant to understanding how the case is developed. And for those of you who are interested and want to follow up that, once again, my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com has some information about the coin helicopter case and my discussion of the operation of the, the uh, pilots in the helicopter. As I said, we were discussing, and I say we, Robert Schaefer and I were discussing that. And just to give you a little bit more information on Robert, he is uh, one of the leading skeptical investigators of UFOs. He is a, was a fellow, I guess, on the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which was cleverly, is cleverly known as CSI. And I say that because if you type CSI into the, your search engine, you not, may not just get information about the program, crime scene investigation, but you get information from them as well. It was a, kind of an interesting marketing ploy, I thought. Maybe they didn't plan it that right. way. Right. Paul Kurtz, of course, who was the founder of PSYCOP originally, uh, or one, or certainly one of the founders, uh, he did the name change back, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, or 15 years ago. And uh, I guess he didn't realize that CSI already meant something pretty much to everybody. So he thought that CSI was a pretty good uh, name. However, um, <laughs> as you pointed out, that you mentioned CSI to somebody, and they think of a TV program or certainly of that genre of things. Um, also, I mean, he uh, they don't have the, the domain name for CSI. They still use psychop.org because they couldn't get CSI. So <laughs> that means something else. Well, that's interesting because I always well, I always thought it was a clever marketing ploy on somebody's part at uh, at, at Psycop. And Psycop, you actually have a name you can say. It's Psycop. We know what that means, but CSI, you cannot pronounce it as an as an acronym. Uh, so yeah. you have to say CSI. And and I want to mention your book is Bad UFOs. 
And uh, the, the, your blog is www.badufos.com. That's in case I don't rem- mention it to the rest of the program. <laughs> I got it up front. Okay, that. good enough. I think that where we were going on the conversations last time, as we were discussing uh, Friedman and, and class, is we were moving more into a discussion of the analysis of specific cases. And I think that might be a good place to go because uh, it gives people, dare I say it, a different perspective on that. And I think um, what we need to do, uh, you had asked me at that point what my opinion of the coin helicopter case was. What do I think it was? I'm pretty well convinced it wasn't a meteor. Um, There were witnesses on the ground who saw the object as well. There's the four witnesses in the helicopter. There is some discussion about electromagnetic effects, meaning the compasses uh, did not operate properly. And I think there was radio interference as well, which is one of the known uh, or suspected or believed to be um, attributes of a of some some UFOs causing radio interference or causing engines to die and that sort of thing. Let me ask you, um, Robert, do you have an opinion on the coin helicopter case? Well, I I don't really, I don't understand the uh, aspects of, you know, what the helicopter and so on and how it does it and so on. I thought the class's analysis was probably correct. Uh, but if you can show that it wasn't, then I would have to go through and look uh, at that more carefully. I still don't understand why we're saying that uh, it couldn't have been a meteor. Are we saying it was visible for too long to be a meteor? or um, It changed directions. And it, was visible. it was visible too long. It, was, um, it changed directions. It kind of paced the aircraft. Um, those well, again, it's hard to know about those things. I mean, they say, oh, did it change the direction? I mean, what, it came from the left and went to the right or vice versa or something and zoomed around? I mean, uh, I don't recall exactly what they said. Again, we know that it's difficult to, especially when you have a point of light in a dark sky, to judge its actual movement independent of the movement of the aircraft. So, uh, I mean, we have a number of examples of things, you know, the famous, was it, uh, the dogfight, right? The, the Gorman dogfight. Gorman dog, yes. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, you know, it's easy for pilots to become confused uh, in that situation. Probably we think also Valentich, Friedrich Valentich in uh, Australia, probably saw Venus or something and uh, was paying no attention to uh, what he was doing and got into a death spiral and crashed apparently. Well, and, and keeping with what you're saying, I, I, will, I will go back to the Charles Witted case from 1948, where the right, uh, two right. pilots of the air, uh, two, two airline pilots witnessed a, a something coming at the airplane, uh, at their airplane, thought it was an army jet. It passed by the aircraft. They thought it wasn't, it was pretty close to them and about the same flight level they were at 5,000 feet and discover, discussed a um, cigar shape with square windows on it. And for the longest time, yeah. everybody thought that was a great case. And then we had the Zon 4 reentry in March of 1968. And we know what it was. It was a decaying Russian spacecraft falling back to Earth. Yeah. But a number of people right. who saw it thought it was a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it. So we understand yeah. the perceptional problems we have looking at something in a dark sky. And I think the Charles Witted case has explained that. And I know my colleagues in the UFO field on, on my side of the fence, which leans toward the extraterrestrial, don't accept that analysis. But I think that's right. a fair analysis. Actually, actually Heineck uh, wrote a Giles Whitted back in 48 or 49, whenever he wrote his Blue Book analysis, he suggested it was likely a meteor. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, they, and, and the Air Force kind of rejected that idea because they couldn't believe the pilots would be fooled by something like that. But they didn't understand that the, as a meteor breaks up and strings out, you get this impression of a, a lighted cockpit and square windows. There was a, and I've yeah. said this before on this program, there was a wonderful, and I don't know if it's still up on YouTube, called Meteor Compilation. It's like three minutes and 19 seconds, and it was a compilation of film video of meteors entering the atmosphere and you could see in a number of cases where it the strings out behind it and gives the impression of windows and that sort of thing especially if you've only seen it for a, 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 a momentary or a, a moment or two 
But with the coin case, um, Jenny Zeidman, I think it was, did a long analysis of that. And based on the radio uh, transmissions and everything, discovered that the object was in sight for five minutes. Not an ionized trail, but the object itself was in sight for five minutes, which would rule out a meteor. Right. Well, uh, the other possibility, again, I don't, I, I haven't gone over this in a long time, but in many cases what you get is a conflation of multiple objects. That they, they see something like a bright meteor. Okay, what was that? And, you know, they talk about it then, oh, look, it's over there. Now, over there might not be the same object. Over there might be Venus or a strange airplane or something. But by conflating the same objects, then you, you create a mystery where one doesn't really exist. So, as I said, I didn't, you know, I have not gone over this. I should look over what Jenny Zeidman wrote and uh, what Class wrote and what you wrote and then try to come up with some sort of a better understanding of it. Well, my main objection to Class was his analysis of what was going on in the cockpit. And, uh, yeah. and, that was, and that I, I can claim expertise on that. Um, and Jenny yes. Zeidman did, a, did a, a quite a bit of extensive work on interviewing the crew members and uh, all, all four crew members of the, of the helicopter and what they had seen and what they, what they had done. I don't believe the object was on radar, but our stealth technology kind of shoots that in the foot. Um, it, it seems to me that her analysis, based on what she had been able to determine, was the object was in sight for at least five minutes. And uh, we had that inexplicable climb where they were at one altitude and the next thing Coyne realizes they were at like 3,800 feet and uh, he had the collective full down and couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't get the aircraft to stop climbing. And, and I know in, in uh, flying in formation, I was at one point in the slot behind the lead aircraft with aircraft all around me as we were going into an LZ. And my aircraft started to float, which means I couldn't get it to descend as fast as the rest of the other aircraft and I had the collective full down and I rolled off the throttle and I kicked the uh, pedals so the aircraft was out of trim doing everything I could get to do get the aircraft to descend faster so these sorts of things happen uh, but class thinking that that Jesse had pulled up the collective because he thought they were getting too close to the ground without saying anything to to Cone is something that wouldn't have happened. And I, I think that's important that we look at those sorts of things. And when you're doing UFO investigation, you've done UFO investigations, of course, um, you try to find all the witnesses and all the people who have relevant information to help you understand what happened. Right. Such as? Yeah, can you think of a case where uh, th th that you've done that. I mean, I can get, I can cite cases where I uh, followed up on things and was able to solve the case based on talking to additional people. And I just wondered if you found some cases where it was inexplicable at the beginning, and it seems to be somewhat more. Uh, it, you you found a solution that fits all the facts as opposed to just part of them. Well. Um... I'm trying to think of, I'm not sure if I have any of those in my uh, um, personal history. I can remember, uh, for example, Alan Hendry back in the days when he was with QFOS and with Heineck, and he investigated some of these cases that had, you know, lights and that seemed to be completely inexplicable, and he found out that uh, in one case, you know, it was an advertising aircraft by, you know, out, going out and talking to people and finding out what's going on there. And uh, so well, let's do this. Uh, yes, let's do this. Often... Let, let's do this. Let's let's uh, come back here in, in just a, just a minute. And um, while we're away, uh, see if you can th think of a case that uh, maybe there is no solution for that. You can say that this is an unidentified case and I'm not embarrassed to say it. I just have been find no terrestrial explanation. I don't know what it was. May have been something else. There may be a solution. We just don't happen to have it at the moment. And, and the Charles Witted case seems to be a good example of that. Um, and I also wanted to point out there are other fine programs on 
the Paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at the listings at the X-Zone website to find those that may spark your interest. I'll have more information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, so please stick around. Schaefer. And as I like to say periodically in the programs, we are properly socially distanced. He's out in California. I'm in Iowa. We have no chance of spreading the virus to one another, at least directly. That is true. Yes, that is true. Maybe maybe virus uh, information, uh, virus misinformation, but not coronavirus. Anyway, um, We've been kind of talking here. I know we started out talking about Philip Class and Stan Friedman and, and looking at some of the mistakes they may have made in their analysis of cases. And, and we all make mistakes on the analysis of ca in cases. I, I myself have had to correct a number of things that we got wrong as I got additional information. And that's one thing I think, I think we need to point out, that as we learn stuff, um, we can uh, we can correct those mistakes we've made in the past. It's not flip flopping. It's not being uh, a bad researcher. It's just you had this information in the beginning, and now you have better information. And I'd like to right. point out one one thing that, that there's been in any number of UFO books the story of this metal vessel, a little I always thought of it as a gravy boat, but more of a bell shaped thing blown out of solid rock in Massachusetts. And you don't know how many times I've read it in, U in UFO books about this thing was embedded in solid rock, which means it had to be in the dropped at the time the rock was formed, and it would be millions of years old. And you know it's true because it was published in the Scientific American in 1842, 1852, somewhere in there. At the University of Iowa, they had a complete set of the Scientific American. So I went back and looked this darn story up. Took me a couple of hours to find it because um, they didn't give a date and I had to search through an awful lot of the magazines. But I found the article and it's not what it has appeared to be. And it probably is a hoax uh, by the surprise, Masons. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, but, but the thing was, it was in Scientific American. And you have to understand yeah. the magazine has evolved from that point. But uh, and, and again, I, there's something on my blog um, about that, and I've and I've covered in other books uh, about out of place artifacts. Look up oops out of out of place things or out of place <laughs> artifacts, yeah. and and you can take a look at it. But the point is, the research took me in a in, in a different direction. I was able to solve this mystery, and and I guess my question to you, Robert, would be: Have you come up to a UFO case where you don't have a good solution for it? You suspect something, but you don't have a good solution. You would you would you would say, I really don't know. Well, you, you try to get the information that you can uh, as best you can, but uh, you try to make your best uh, analysis based on that. I can give you an example of uh, where I've had to change my analysis, where I found out I was wrong. Turns out not not completely wrong, but incomplete, and so not not a, uh, a, a complete analysis. And that has to do with the Jimmy Carter case that we've been saying for years uh, that it was Venus because he was looking directly at Venus. See, this is one of those cases where it took a lot of research just to get to that point because there was misinformation and no information, and uh, in the newspaper accounts were saying that it was in Thomaston, Georgia, or some such thing, uh, which it wasn't. Uh, and then I, I finally managed to track down uh, from Hayden Hughes, who had a UFO bureau in uh, Oklahoma City, and he uh, had actually gotten Carter to fill out a form about his sighting. Uh, but Carter didn't remember the day. He knew it was in Leary, Georgia, but he, he thought it was October of 69. I managed to get through to the headquarters of the Lions Club, uh, and by pure stroke of luck, they still had the information there, although they were in the process of uh, 
getting rid of old information uh, that's you know more than a few years old. And it turned out that it was not uh, the date that he said it was January 6th of 1969. So you put in Leary, Georgia, that location, and January 6th, and you get the position you know that he was pointing, absolutely pointing right at Venus. So okay, that's your analysis. It makes sense. We know so many people. Um, have, you know, reported Venus as uh, being a UFO. Well, there was another fellow, or actually a couple people, uh, one fellow who started to look into this. Apparently he had uh, some familiarity with the Carter Library and so on. And But he had also worked on these launches. NASA was doing these uh, barium clouds of sending up um, clouds of chemicals into the upper atmosphere, for the reason of checking them, but basically following them, they, they want to learn about uh, winds in the upper atmosphere, and um, so uh, and, and so he was familiar with this, and he knew that in Eglin Air Force Base, which is not real far from where Carter was, uh, it's in uh, Florida Panhandle, and he was uh, in Georgia. Um, but it turns out that there was indeed a launch on January sixth of 1969, and just before the time that Carter reportedly saw the UFO. Um, and if you calculate where the thing would have been visible, here's the amazing thing, right next to Venus. In other words, you'd see Venus, and then right next would be this big glowing cloud uh, from the rocket. Now, this is information I didn't have, and uh, nobody that I knew had this information, but having checked it, it appears to be correct. Then if you go back, somebody else went back and checked newspaper recounts and also the APRO bulletin and so on, there were lots of other reports on January 6th from that region around uh, Georgia and even uh, Carolinas and Florida. People were reporting seeing something in the sky. So, now, I mean, people mistake Venus for UFO all the time, but they don't do it all at the same time. That, you know, it's a random sort of a thing. A few here, a few there, whereas if a bunch of people all at once say, oh, look at that, then something is up there. And what was up there was, it turns out, yes, indeed, there was a launch from Eglin Air Force Base of the uh, a rocket, I forget what kind of rocket, that goes up, I don't know, 50 miles or 60 miles and releases this cloud into the upper atmosphere that's glowing, and then they track it and they learn something from it. So, and I had, that's on my blog now, a very recent posting um, that explains this, that as soon as we got the information about the Carter UFO and the uh, and the the launch of the barium clouds, uh, and I saw that everything fit together. So you know, I I put that information out there and on, on my uh, website as well, which is debunker dot com. Well, There's a page you, about that Jimmy Carter sighting there. Well, have you ever have you ever come up to a UFO sighting that that you just had to say I don't know? Well, we've discussed a few of them. Uh, you've talked about Leveland, and I'm really not sure. Uh, but uh, we also have some questions as to exactly what was seen and how how credible some of those accounts are. And so, it's really I would you know I would I would hesitate to give a, a strong opinion on that. Uh, also, we talked to oh, some of these are we've talked about uh, the Socorro. What exactly did was somebody tricking? Uh, was a moral? I mean, was this a student hoax? It's easy to say that, and it's been said credibly that it's a hoax, but nobody's ever absolutely shown, look, here's exactly what they did, here's what they showed Zamora, and here's how they got away after doing that. Nobody has put that together, and I don't think it can be done, because I don't think there's any scenario that would fit that. Uh, so uh, now somebody else proposed that he saw one of the early propane uh, balloons, which was a was a novelty at that time. People did not have the now familiar propane balloons back in 1964, although there were uh, a couple of them being tested as like prototypes. So, and you know, possibly he saw something like that. Uh, but again, it, it allegedly got away so fast. Maybe he made the whole thing up. I don't know who. You well, know, I I've given I... up. You know, people would say, "Why would anybody say that?" I've given up trying to to answer why anybody would say that because we know that some people say some amazing things, and who knows why. Well, I was going to say, I, I, what you're saying is you you've got a number of scenarios of what it might have been, but you really don't know, and I think that's the real point here. At with the Socorro case, yeah. we really don't know. You know, was it an yeah. alien spacecraft? Was it something else? 
I, I, I'm assuming that you lean toward it was something else, and I might lean toward yeah. it being an alien spacecraft, but we really don't know. And I think that's the no, point. I would think that the, uh, the, the, uh, the idea of it being a propane balloon that landed, two guys got out, fiddled around a little bit, and then took off again, makes a certain amount of sense. But again, I can't nail that as you know being absolutely true. I think it makes more sense than the student hoax, simply because I can't imagine how that student hoax could have been carried out. Well, I'll agree with you. It makes more sense than the student hoax scenario. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Samora got awfully close to the thing, and I, th I even if he couldn't say, well, that was a propane balloon, he would have. I think he would have understood that. Uh, so. And I understand the reasoning behind that was the roar that he kept talking about in the blue flame makes make, makes it sound yeah, like yeah, it sounds a propane like a propane balloon. balloon. Yeah, because the thing goes a whoosh, the flame comes out and a loud whoosh, and the balloon goes up. But I still lean I still lean toward the idea that it was an alien spacecraft, and uh, I explored that in depth at uh, Encounters in the Desert. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to mention that book <laughs> once again. And I and and some of the ideas we've talked about here with Socorro. Uh, once again, uh, I've explored on my blog at www.kevinrandall.com. Just type in Zamora or Socorro, and it'll lead you to those articles, and you can take a look at uh, where they are uh, in, in that respect. I, and, and talking about people seeing Venus, um, and I know that's it's absolutely credible. Uh, people just see that and don't understand what it is, if, especially yeah. when it's very close yeah. to Earth and it's very bright in the evenings, and it looks like rays are shooting out of it, and people people make <laughs> that mistake all the time. Yes, and, yes. And I've you know I've gone back at and looked at cases again and come up with solutions that I thought were inexplicable at the time. Uh, the one thing that bothers me, uh, one of the things that bothers me, and it, and it applies both to skeptics and the true believers, is overlooking the information. I want to believe so badly, I'm not going to accept this information. I want to solve it so badly, I'm going to overlook this information. Um, I, I don't understand, I understand why the true believers will not accept solutions, but I, I, if you're a true skeptic, it seems to me that an answer is, I just don't know, is an acceptable answer. Well, it, it can be, yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, of course, it's always best to, to uh, come up with some sort of at least a tentative hypothesis if one can. See, the problem is this, that what we have information about cases, different cases, but some of that information is wrong. And we don't know what is wrong and what is not. Like somebody said, well, it was 100 feet away. No, it wasn't 100 feet away. It was Venus. So, you know, one might say, well, it could have been Venus because he said it was 100 feet away. Yeah, he said that, but he was wrong. So, you know, you can't just take the information you're given and say, well, it's, it's gospel truth. Um, it, it has to be taken with a grain of salt, and it has to be viewed in, in light of what we know about witness reliability, which often is not very good at all. And um, so, I mean, that makes it, uh, makes it all more difficult to know what, uh, you know, you could say, well, if, the, if this piece of information is wrong, then the solution along these lines makes sense but again you can never say with certainty what you know information that you're given is correct and what isn't unless of course the information is deduced by instrumentality i always like that right word, yeah, if you have good good instruments or you have a yeah good cameras videos and so on then you can at least you can rely on what's on the film or in the image um and not on a human interpretation but then even then it's it's difficult to know you know what are you uh, actually seeing? Well, I, I you know, I've been involved in cases where, yeah, obviously the witnesses have confabulated, and I use that term as opposed to lying because I don't think they're lying. I think they're yeah. mistaken in their perceptions. And um, yeah. I did, a, I did again. I did a, a, a story on my blog about a sighting in Mount Vernon, Iowa, in which the original illustration was just of a sort of a sparkly light in the distance, and then it became a dome disc, and then it became a dome disc with two humanoid creatures inside. And um, and the woman was not lying. It's what she thought she perceived and how her opinion changed over a period of several weeks. But in talking to the fellow that was with her at the time, I learned exactly what it was. I learned what he had seen. And when I went out to the side, I learned what they were watching were the landing lights of aircraft at the airport. 
Um, but the wind was blowing the wrong direction and they were looking at it through the trees and it looked like uh, some kind of light coming down through the trees as opposed to aircraft landing at the airport. But I, by going out there, I understood what they, what they were looking at. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break here, which we have to do. And I will say once again, there are some fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. So take a look at the X-Zone website or xzbn.net. And we will be back right after this discussing UFOs. And maybe we'll talk about Phil Class and Stan Friedman a little bit more. So please stick around. Joined by Robert Schaefer, we're talking about UFOs now, as opposed to Stan Friedman and Philip Glass, and we're kind of, um, I guess, discussing the mindset between uh, true believers and. Actually, I think we're really talking about the mindset between true believers and debunkers, as opposed to true skeptics, because I think a true skeptic can look at the information, and as you said, Robert, uh, sometimes you just have to say, "I don't know." And the Air Force was kind of caught in that a couple of times. And again, on the Zamora case, uh, Hector Quintanella, who was the chief of Project Blue Book during that sighting, couldn't come up with a solution for it. Any, even one of the nonsensical Air Force solutions and said, well, I just don't know. And he hesitated. He didn't want to put that label on it because, as he said, it, he knew the UFO hobbyists would go nuts, but he could not come up with any kind of explanation for it. And I, and I think that's, that's really kind of what science and research is about. Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. Yeah, I suspect if you had really good, accurate information about every case uh, or, that you're looking at, that you would find a rational explanation for it. However, it's so hard to know what information is accurate and what is not that you really can't uh, conclude in some cases with certainty what's going on. Well, let me let me ask you this: What would it take to convince you that there's alien visitation? Well, I don't know about alien, but let's say unknown visitors from unknown places. Well, okay. um, that would be easy. All they would have to do is land someplace. It wouldn't have to be the White House lawn; could be anywhere. And excuse uh, <clears throat> me, I probably need some water or something here, but. Uh, and to, to be seen by film crews and by uh, individuals, dozens or hundreds of individuals, each with their own cell phones. I mean, we see this kind of coverage is happening now with, you know, the riots in the major cities. and People are taking their cell phones and they're, you know, posting, you know, pictures of burning buildings and things like that. Well, what if something like that happened that a bunch of people came along and posted a picture of a UFO landing somewhere? Um you know, I mean, everybody is carrying around uh, video cameras now in their cell phones, and can uh, any any individual can post something to Facebook or Instagram or something, and it could go potentially viral, and the entire, you know, the entire world would see it if it were something that were, you know, really remarkable and worth seeing. So, you know, if something like that happened, well, I'd have to admit it happened. It's like I said before, when. People report Venus as a UFO. It happens from time to time, and it's random. If a bunch of people all at the same time make very similar reports, fairly consistent reports, you know something happened. You don't know what it was, but you know that something unusual happened. And uh, so, you know, if, if a bunch of people all at the same time and got this, this evidence or even just hovering at the land, maybe just coming close, but be clear, not just, oh, look at that light in the sky there. You know, Heineck was very dismissive of lights in the sky. He wouldn't get excited over them. He wanted, you know, he thought the close encounters would be significant, but not, you know, lights in the sky. So uh, that's, you know, kind of along the lines of what I'm thinking. That yeah, I could believe that something were happening, but let's let's see the widespread. Let's see let's see something that that's really unexplainable and goes viral. Then I I would be half convinced and. Maybe enough time, I'd be fully convinced if you know if the evidence were really there. Well, I know Heineck 
and said that uh, nocturnal lights didn't weren't really uh, of much importance. And right. I long ago realized that a, a light in the night sky really didn't advance our knowledge whatsoever, other than two or three people saw it. And I always I always use the analogy: if you got a guy in a private plane at three o'clock in the morning and he turned his landing lights on for a reason, and the wind's blowing the wrong direction, you just see a light crossing the sky. You hear no noise. You hear nothing about it. It's an airplane, but you don't know that, and there's no way to determine that because it's a private plane. He may not have uh, filed a flight plan. Uh, you may not. He may may not check the right airport to find his flight plan. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong to to inhibit your investigation, and so you've got a light crossing the sky at night, and it really does nothing for you. And in a similar yeah. vein, there was a, a series of three photographs taken over Mana, Iowa, in November. It was November 22nd, and I think it was 1973, but I could be wrong on the date. And uh, for the longest time, we couldn't figure out what it was, because based on the map orientation that we could draw from that and the the uh, thing, the the length of time was the object was in sight and that sort of thing, it ruled out a lot of stuff, and it couldn't be an airplane because it was moving too slow and that sort of thing. And it dawned on me, well, maybe it was flying at an angle, not straight across as we thought. And eventually what we did was we had the uh, pictures blown up. Uh, Russ Estes did it. And we blew up the pictures and we eventually got to the point where we could actually see the airplane. So we were able to solve this inexplicable sighting as an airplane. But there's been others, other cases where we have that sort of uh, thing where we cannot definitely say this is explainable, and I and I think of, of the Lubbock lights specifically because we have the formation of the lights crossing the sky, photographed by Carl Hart Jr. And we had lots of witnesses well, seeing uh, the lights. Pardon yeah, me. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but the witnesses say that the the Hart photograph is not what they saw, and there's very good reason for believing that uh, that his photo is a hoax. Hart said no. And here's, and, and here's why I say that. I talked to Carl Hart in the mid-1990s. I happened to be in Lubbock, Texas, searching for the diaries of uh, archaeologists who were supposedly involved in the Roswell case. And I figured if we could find his diaries, we might get some good information. And on a lark, I looked up Carl Hart in the phone book, and his name was there, and I called him. And I talked to him for 30 minutes about that. And I said to him, what did you photograph? And knowing that at this late date, nobody cares. Um, if it's a hoax, nobody cares. And what he said was, I still don't know what I photographed. Now, the professors at one time said, no, that's they, they talked about the lights being in the formation, the, the four professors that originated the, the, whole, the whole thing in, in Lubbock from uh, Texas Tech, the Texas Tech College at the time, now Texas Tech University. Um, but one of them got his nose out of joint because Carl Hart's photographs kind of took precedent over their sighting because he had photographs and they didn't. <laughs> and, and, right. and, so, and, and so then you end up with the problem is, well, is the professor changing his story because he's annoyed at Carl Hart or is what he's saying is really accurate, that kind of thing? And, you know, we look at the whole file and I think the photographs are really inexplicable. We don't know what they are. And you're left with that. It's either something extremely unusual or it's a hoax. There's really no middle ground in the in those photographs. Right. Well, no, my, I'm recalling an analysis I read. I'm trying to remember who wrote it, um, but basically that if you look at those two photos, that and you rotate them, that it's the same thing. In other words, the the relative positions of uh, the objects in the photos are the same with respect to each other, even though the whole thing has rotated, and, and so. This is not, a, you know, which strongly indicates, you know, a hoax. Um, I'm trying to, I'm not sure if I can find this right now. But, well, uh, while, you're, while you're searching for that, once again, I, I, I stress that I did talk to Carl Hart. And, and we mentioned on the last program, uh, the fellows, the Lucy, photogra Lucy photographs, where the kids had taken the the flying saucer with the flashlight right, underneath it. Right, it's in the right. Condon the Condon Committee. It's been on the it's been on a number right. of books and printed a number of places. I think Apro's printed it a number of times. NICAP has. And uh, as they matured and got older, when they were approached again, they said, "Yeah, we we faked that." 
And I think 99% of the photographs taken of UFOs were taken by teenage boys, and 99% of those are faked. Uh, and, and, and when yeah. they mature and they have an opportunity, they come out and say, yeah, I faked that thing. And uh, what gets me about the heart photograph is that he didn't, he didn't ever say, I faked that thing. He had the opportunity. I think in, in, in the 1950s when he, it was investigated and the Air Force really threw the fear of God into him, if this is a fake and you've lied to us, you're going to be in big trouble. And so he's now stuck in the story. He can't get out of it because if he admits it a hoax, he's in big trouble. He's, he's afraid to admit that it's a hoax. But I think now in, in the mid-1990s, I think he would have been in his 70s at the time I talked to him. He has no fear of that anymore. And if it was a hoax, I'm, I, I am convinced he would have said, yeah, I faked the thing and here's why I did it. But, in, uh, but he didn't say that. He says, I still don't know what I photographed. So I'm, I, I think that's, that's a case where you've got a photograph, you've got four photographs actually by a witness so you have some instrumentality involved in it. You have something to take into the lab and to research. And I also think that you've got debunkers who are going to find something wrong with it, no matter how wrong their analysis happens to be. And that's why I'm now separating debunkers from skeptics. I think skeptics will look at it and say, eh, I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical of this whole thing. Well... Like I said, the, the, to me, those photos don't look really like, I would, you know, things in the sky. They look almost like something that was just produced in a lab or something is what they look like. You got your bell ringing well, there. Well, the, um, the photographs themselves, there, they were, there were five originally. One of them has, has been lost. It's never been printed as near as I can find. And I've looked at a lot of different sources. I even went through the newspaper files there in... in uh, in Lubbock, somebody had stolen their Lubbock lights file for crying out loud. Um, but oh, there were oh. five. There were five photographs originally. There were four that had been printed everywhere. The Air Force could find no reason to suggest they had been hoaxed. Um, and attempts to duplicate them as something in the sky with either the um, birds or other explanations that had been offered uh, failed. So. I'm 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 leaning toward here something that's still inexplicable, not necessarily alien, but certainly inexplicable. Well, I'd have to go and dig through. I never know when you bring up these cases. I don't know which ones you're going to bring up. <laughs> Neither so, do I. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there is there is an analysis of showing that you know these these uh, those lights uh, on the on the heart photos are probably are not something in the sky. They're probably holes in a plate of some kind or in a in a in a, uh, in a board or in a, in a cardboard and with light shining through and that's photographed in different positions is what think, that appears to be i think one of the analysis showed that the lights were not on a solid object but had moved in relation to one another in the formation well now i've uh, read uh, precisely the opposite of that and so that's why i, I say i don't have that information in front of me now but uh, one would have to, uh, you know, look look at everything that's available on this, and that would take quite a bit of time to gather it all together. Well, that's why that's why I do something called chasing footnotes on my blog periodically, where um, I will find a case, and they'll they'll give me a reference, and I'll chase it back to that reference, to the next reference, to the next reference, till I get to the end. And uh, yeah, that's what you want to do. And, and I just did one on a uh, UFO sighting with uh, uh, electromagnetic effects in Minnesota that took place, oh, for God's sakes, I can't remember the date, um, but it was um, Minnesota, it's on the blog, it's, it's one of the latest articles on the blog at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, but I, I looked at what Mark Rodiger had said in his book about electromagnetic interference, and he said it came from... Um, um, pass, passport to Magonia from Jacques Vallée, and I went to that one, and he said it came from ATEC, so I went to the Project Blue Book files, and there was no case with that case name on it, but there was one um, from Minnesota on the same date at the same time, and the two places are about 10 miles apart, and one is where the guy lived, and one was where the guy saw the thing, and so I was able to chase it to its very end and came up with... Uh, an explanation that uh, it may have been, a, in fact, it may have been a hoax based on what was in the ATEC file 
and uh, uh, valet didn't mention that and Rodiker who did not chase it to the to the blue book files because when he wrote his report he didn't have that available to him we're gonna have to take another break here which uh, helps pay for the program I guess I'm here with Robert Schaefer we're talking UFOs we've kind of diverged from our discussion of Phil Class and Stan Friedman, which I kind of figured we would at some point, and talk about some UFO cases that are exciting. Uh, you can find more information about the cases we're mentioning here at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com or at www.badufos.com with Robert Shaver. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. here with Robert Schaefer. We're talking about UFOs, and I'm trying to get him to admit that there are inexplicable sightings out there, which I think he's basically done, so we don't really need to worry about that. Think of it as being a more of a true skeptic, and I think in the UFO field, we need more skeptics. We need people who are not going to embrace everything as a spacecraft, because sometimes you just see stuff that fools you, and you just can't figure out what it was. Um, and I, I was intrigued by when I asked you what it would take, and you mentioned uh, you don't even need to have a spacecraft in the lab to research, but you could use, again, my favorite word, instrumentality, the cell phones. Uh, everybody yeah. uh, from, from multiple locations independently uh, photographing right. the same thing. People because who don't know each other. Independently. Because there's all kinds yeah. of information you could derive from that, knowing where the person was, what direction they were looking, and basically what angle the thing was. You can do, you can just discern it, all kinds of information from that. Yes, and that's what we don't see. And that's you know, if if I mean, if we believe some people's accounts, I mean, UFOs show up at the same place every night and hover there for an hour or more or, um, you know, are, are seen frequently in certain locations, well, hang out there, bring your best cameras and so on. I mean, it's nonsense. We can't, if you've been watching, you've been hearing all the talk about the so-called Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, well, they got everything there. They got cryptids and they got, multi, they got dimensional portals and they got UFOs and everything. And they've had a few UFOs on their um, show and but you know they're distant objects that really aren't very clear and you think well maybe it's a balloon or maybe it's something and i'm thinking you know this is supposed to be the hottest of the hot spots and there have been people both when bigelow was the owner robert bigelow uh was the owner of the so-called skinwalker ranch for a number of years he had his people out there he had a group called the national institute for discovery sciences and they were camped out there and uh, over a period of several years. And they, uh, two of them uh, uh, wrote a book uh, about the, what, the hunt for the skinwalker and uh, George Knapp and was it Colin Kelleher. And um, basically what they said as a summary in that book, well, we were there for all these years, but we never were able to capture anything, you know, on film or on the video that would be truly would truly prove anything. And so you think about that, wait a minute, they, they were out there over a period of several years, maybe not every day of the year, but many days each year. They're out there with cameras and, and all kinds of whatever equipment they've got, and they still can't record it. There's supposedly all this paranormal stuff happening, yet they can't record it. Now we got the new owner, uh, Brandon Fugel, and we've got uh, a different crowd, and now they've got quite a substantial uh, audience of their TV show about the so-called the, um, you know, the, the secrets of Skinwalker Ranch or whatever they call it. And uh, again, it's the same thing. There, there's no, there are all these stories about, oh, my, I, I feel, you know, I, I go to this spot and I feel dizzy or my phone doesn't work or my uh, magnetometer detects something. Well, okay, but, and this just goes on for week after week and nothing really happens. 
where is, show me a cryptid. You know, supposedly there's a skinwalker, whatever that is, some kind of a monster. Show me a chupacabra. Show me a Bigfoot. Show me a, a bulletproof wolf that's supposed to exist there. A wolf that uh, will come at you and, and you'll shoot at it and hit it, but it, the bullets won't stop it and it'll just walk away. Okay, that's a good story, but you know, let's see, let's, let's see a little bit of video evidence of any of this stuff. That's the same thing with all these claims of paranormal going on. They never always manage to slip away before the evidence becomes convincing. Well, the one thing I remember is there was a bolide, very bright meteor, seen over the Grand Teton yeah. Mountains in Wyoming in the 1960s. And there's a, uh, film, of right. there's a film of it. I guess it yes. bounced off the atmosphere. There's a film of it. Yes, I, but there, I wrote but there about are, that in my uh, earlier UFO book. Yes. But here's the point. And uh, it, in fact, it was even on uh, the cover of Sky and Telescope magazine um, uh, a while after it happened, a year or two after it happened, uh, where it looked almost like the National Geographic or something. Here's this, uh, you know, uh, picture of the mountains and the lake and whatever and whatever in the sky. And then, of course, we see this this bolide that's uh, zooming across uh, the sky. And it was widely seen by everybody over a stretch of like more than a thousand miles. Uh, I think it was going from south to north. They saw it first in the, you know, around New Mexico, and then it went north in Colorado, Wyoming, and then people in Canada saw it. So, I mean, this definitely was something there. Uh, we have so many photos and so many witnesses. And, and there's my point. people had cell phones. These are just plain old uh, uh, cameras. There's, but here, that's my point. That's my point. Yeah. Here is a very rare phenomenon. You cannot reproduce it. We have right. movie footage and we have still photographs by independent witnesses from a lot of, from around the around the area. We have photographs of it, and that was the thing yeah. that's always bothered me about UFOs. We do not have a case like that where we've got photos of the same object taken from from multiple locations. And right, I and thought, I think that. Uh, we would have such a thing if these, you know, extraterrestrial UFOs were real or some other strange, you know, type of completely unknown phenomenon, but still widely seen. We know it's widely reported, but it's not widely recorded or photographed, at least not with any clarity. And and the other side of that coin is talking about the, the photograph over Grand Tetons. That object was, what, uh, 70, 80 miles in the air and very bright. Something like that, yeah. When yeah, we're talking yeah. about UFOs, when we see we see them close to the ground, so they're not seen over that kind of a wide area, and the opportunity to photograph it by witnesses is therefore limited by the altitude of the object and the size of it and the brightness of it, for that matter. So, yeah, well, that's true, but uh, it, it, um, we are, we have no shortage of UFOs reported in and around major cities. And so I would think that even if it's relatively low, a thousand feet or whatever, over a major city, it should be very widely seen and very widely photographed, and it's not. Well, I would have, I would, have, I will argue that point with you. I would say, fifteen, twenty years ago, yeah, that's right. But in today's environment, nobody's looking up; they're all looking at their cell phones, so uh, they may no, not see people, it. We're still getting plenty of reports. Oh, so yes. I don't think that's a problem. Shortage of reports. MUFON records all kinds of uh, reports uh, on their uh, website. So there seems to be no They give you the weekly or the monthly sightings. They, you know, this state had so many sightings. California had this many. New York had that many and so on. So, I mean, the sightings are still occurring. But, but, but the flip side of that has always been that we've known the 95% Plus, sightings are of mundane objects seen maybe under unusual circumstances. So that's why you get people reporting um, Venus. And, and I was involved in an investigation, I, I think I've mentioned this before, in Wisconsin. And the guy called in and said there was one landing in his backyard. And we went rushing out there and he pointed it out to us, this bright red flashing light. And we looked at that and said, you know, that's on a uh, radio tower. Been there for years. He'd just <laughs> never seen it before. Um, yeah. been there in his environment for years and, and so he was fooled by it that one I just happened to be in the police station when the call came in and they said you want to go and I said yeah I'll go with you it's be something interesting to see but I, I think the point is that we sometimes get lost in the noise of what's going on and I, by that I mean there are so many reports of mundane objects there being 
reported as something unusual that we we lose what might be the really good sightings in all that noise and and we have to kind of discern that as well as we do our research well that's true too so I, I, I you know, when when you say we don't have the good photographs from multiple sources, I say yeah, that's a good point, but it's maybe not the the end all point, given given the circumstances. And now we're all inside all the time because we don't dare go outside unless we want to burn <laughs> something down. But um, yeah, I, I think that's. That's the point that we need more skepticism in the UFO community and maybe a tad bit less in the skeptical, uh, the debunker community. We can use less, we can use less debunkers. I guess that would be the way to say it, uh, going from both sides. Well, of, the, of course, class, so of course, I have the uh, website uh, debunker.com, which I think is a perfectly fine name. Um, as Phil Class always used to say, a thing cannot be debunked unless it is filled with bunk in the first place. So debunking is a is a positive activity. Yes, and, if it is being done correctly. And all of us, all of us in the UFO community understand that, but we also understand that debunker has been applied to the people who are going to reject all information about UFOs, regardless of the nature of that information, because they know these things can't be, therefore they are not. And and that's why I try to se separate the debunkers. From the skeptics. I think skepticism is a very good thing to have. It's a very important thing to have, especially if you're researching something like UFOs. You need to be skeptical. You need to understand human nature. You need to understand that people are going to make stuff up. I don't know how many people I have run into in the UFO field who claim to be former military officers. And when you look at their records, you find out they are not, or they weren't in the right. positions they claim to have had. They didn't have the training they claim to have had. And, and that puts a real damper on UFO research because we can point to those people and say, they're lying about who they are. So why should we believe anything else they say? And it kind of casts a poll over legitimate research that may have may lead us to something that is exciting and different. Okay, I did find, uh, digging here a little bit for the Lubbock Lights, this was an analysis published about three years ago by Gilles Fernandez, who was a, a French uh, investigator. Um, he has, uh, and I'm, this is on a Facebook group of uh, UFO pragmatism, and... Um, he takes these these um, photos that we're talking about here, the Carl Hart photos, and he shows that you rotate them um, and you get the objects in the same position, even though you rotate them, and that so they're not changing position relative to each other. Um, so one would have to uh, look at this carefully to make sure that it is it is correct. But assuming if it is correct, that pretty well establishes that the Carl Hart photos are a hoax. Well, I would disagree I with that. I would, I would disagree with that on one thing. What if they're lights on a fixed object? Well, that's, yeah, that's, well, I suppose it could be, but that's not what they're supposed to be, I guess. But, uh, so it could well, be, yeah, I suppose it could be the gargantuan fixed object going over, but that's not what uh, the witnesses apparently reported. They, they thought that they were, you know, individual, individual objects going over. But there is a sighting that took place in Albuquerque some minutes before, an hour before, of, of a flying yeah. wing-type craft with lights on, on it as well, They because it was uh, bright enough for them to see the object as well as the lights on it. Now, it, that not to say that it's the same object that flew over Lubbock, Texas, minutes later, and it's certainly not the object that Carl Hart photographed because it was days later that he made his photographs. Robert, we're going to have to break it off there. Uh, for those of you who are interested, take a look at the... Um, Gail's Fernandez site, if you can get to it to see what he says about the Lubbock Lights. Uh, if you want um, the other side of the coin from, from where we normally sit here, take a look at www.badufos.com, and you'll get a different analysis of a UFO situation. And um, as I say frequently, there are other fine programs on about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at the X-Zone website and scroll down and you'll take a look at those sorts of things. I will be back in 167 hours 
with another guest talking about UFOs and uh, maybe somebody for not quite as skeptical as Robert, although he's done a well, good job of uh, defending his point of view, I think. Um, but it's a, it's a hard thing to um, nail down because there are so many people throwing so much mud in so many directions in the UFO field that you sometimes get splattered by that and don't realize it. And it's hard to um, kind of sift through the solid information that um, you see on UFOs. Um, and sometimes the believers make mistakes, sometimes the skeptics make mistakes, and sometimes I make mistakes, but we try to correct that. As I say, you've been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Please lift listening at xzbn.net, and thanks for tuning in.